When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 187A, Jane Shaw, by James Bolton. So this week I'm very pleased to present a guest episode from James, author of the Queens of England podcast, but before I do, let me remind you of the great History of England, Richard III debate from next weekend. All you have to do is like the History of England Facebook page and vote or vote and comment. Not only will you be taking part in the greatest history event until next time, also you'll be entered for the prize draw and have a chance of winning a medieval coin. I ask one more favour if you wouldn't mind. Please share the post at the website historyofengland.com or the Facebook page post. Tell the world out there just what a nerd you really are. And if they work hard, they could be every bit as nerdy too. Okay, enough. Over to you, James. A sinner comes before you. She has committed the acts of falsehood and fornication. She has confessed her sins and begged for forgiveness. To demonstrate her repentance, she will cast aside all pride, all artifice, and present herself as the gods made her to you the good people of the city. She comes before you with a solemn heart, shorn of secrets, naked before the eyes of gods and men, to make her walk of atonement. Shame. 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 Hello, I'm James Bolton, writer and producer of the Queens of England podcast. My show examines the lives of the many women throughout English history that have married kings and become Queen's consort. Throughout, I've tried to show that it's not only the ruling queens like Elizabeth or Victoria that deserve to be remembered but the ones who were not queens in their own right as well. 
At the moment, I am ploughing through the Queens of the Wars of the Roses period, Margaret of Anjou, Elizabeth Woodville and Anne Neville. I also occasionally do supplementals on women who are not Queen's consort, and I was considering doing one on the subject of this show, Jane Shaw. But then, the opportunity came up to do an episode for the History of England, and this seemed like too perfect an opportunity to miss. You can find my show in all the usual places, as well as my website, queensofenglandpodcast.com. But enough plugging. Now time for some schmoozing. The wonderful, talented, and may I also say devilishly handsome, David Crowther, has generously, and perhaps unwisely, allowed me to present an episode of his show. David is one of the giants of the history podcasting world, and I am extremely grateful for him blessing me loose on his audience for a week. One thing I did not mention to him before I let me do this episode is that, unlike him, I back the Lancastrians in the Wars of the Roses. Being a glory-hunting Manchester United fan, that is a given. Now, David, of course, is Yorkist rebel scum, but I'll do my best not to let that affect the episode. Okay, enough of all that. On with the show. The clip that I played for you at the start is from the HBO series Game of Thrones. Now, I have removed the name of the character from the clip so as to avoid spoilers, but I'm sure fans of the show will know the scene that I'm talking about. A powerful noblewoman has fallen foul of the upper echelons of the dominant religion in the region. This church is super-evangelical and powerful enough to humble the woman whose domestic power base is significantly weakened. She was thrown in a dungeon and was forced to atone for her sins, which were mostly sexual in nature. The final part of her punishment was to be forced to walk from the main church of the city back to her home, completely naked, through a crowd that hated her guts, flanked by militant monks, all while a nun behind her rang a bell crying, Shame! This is a powerful scene in the TV show, and in the book series that it is adapted from. In an interview with Entertainment Weekly, when asked what inspired him to come up with the scene, the book's author, George R. R. Martin, answered that it was the story of Jane Shaw. Jane Shaw has gone down as one of the most famous mistresses in English history. Any self-respecting story about the reigns of Edward IV and Richard III has to contain a treatment of Jane. But who was she? Well, in many ways, we know frustratingly little about her. Indeed, the very name, Jane Shaw, is actually incorrect. The first time that her name appears in print is in a play by the Elizabethan playwright Thomas Hayward, who featured her prominently in his two-part treatment of Edward IV. This was followed by everyone else in both literature and historical writing until 1972, when it was discovered that her name was actually Elizabeth, but I'm going to stick with Jane if that's alright with you, as that is the one that all but the pickiest of books choose to use. We have no idea when Jane was born, but we are fairly sure that it was in London. Her father was John Lambert, a member of the Company of Mercers, and was a leading tradesman in the city and reasonably well off. The merchantmen of London were the lifeblood of the English economy, and if it were not for them, England would have been crushed in the Hundred Years' War long before Joan of Arc and the Dauphin Charles showed up. This period when she was born was not a good time for Londoners. The twin evils of civil war and plague were not at all good for business, or indeed for one's health. Jane's mother, Amy, was the daughter of a prominent grocer, and John rose up the ranks of the city in the 1440s and 50s, becoming first an alderman and then a sheriff, though he never did reach the top of the pile and become Lord Mayor. Therefore, Jane was not born into a noble family, but it was a distinguished and successful one. She was the eldest of four children, with the other three all being sons. Lambert supported the Yorkists in their dispute with Henry VI in the early 1450s, 
and when this broke out into open warfare in the second half of the decade, Jane was not far from a lot of the action, as two of the key battles of the war happened in St Albans, only 20 miles away from her home in Cheapside. Now David has been going through in great detail the history of the Wars of the Roses, so I won't go over much of his covered ground, but remember that London in general was Yorkist, and despised the royal regime, and John Lambert would have been at the fore of all of this. In 1461, however, a new figure arrived on the battle scene, the dashing and handsome Edward Duke of York. He was a very different figure from the rather slimy Earl of Warwick, and was a big hit with the ladies. Jane, who would have been around ten or so after Edward's decisive victory at Taunton and the first overthrow of Henry VI, would have been one of the thousands of people who lined the streets of London to welcome their new king, Edward IV, into the capital. Now we know next to nothing about Jane's upbringing, so we have to make a few basic assumptions based on what we know about the lives of young girls born to the merchant families. Given the prominence and wealth of her family, she would have been given an education, though not as rigorous as one of her brothers would have received. Girls were only allowed to attend school up to primary level, and anything above that had to have been provided by private tutors, unless she went into the church. This education that she would have received meant that she could read and write, and would have taught her how to perform ladylike tasks, like to sing, dance, and maybe use the needle. As the daughter of a merchant, she would have likely have been highly numerate, and of course, at the family dinner table, she would have been kept abreast of the goings-on in the country, especially as her father was, as I said, a staunch Yorkist. In short, it was a very comfortable upbringing for Jane, and she could have been expected to have lived a comfortable life, no doubt marrying one of the sons of her father's many wealthy business associates. The minimum marriage age for the medieval period was 12, and it is usually around that age that parents started to think seriously about whom to marry their daughters off to. Of course, Jane would have been far too young to be thinking too serious about it herself, but she had very little say in the matter anyway. This is the moment that Jane's life really enters the historical record, though sadly it does so in a rather confusing manner. For a long time, it was believed that she married a goldsmith named Matthew Shaw, but in actuality her husband was a man called William Shaw. He was a warden of the city from a good family, and was a member of the company of Mercers just like her father. He was quite a bit older than his new bride, as was the norm. She would have been in her teens, him in his thirties. The principal narrative source of Jane's life is Thomas More's The History of King Richard III, and he describes the match thusly. Quote, This woman was born in London, worshipfully friended, honestly brought up, and very well married, saving somewhat too soon, her husband an honest citizen, young and goodly, and of good substance. He then goes on, though, to foretell the problems with the match. Quote, But for as much as they were coupled, ere she were well ripe, she not very fervently loved for whom she had never longed. We don't know exactly what happened in Jane and William's marriage, but let's remember what we know about medieval marriage. It was rarely for love, almost always for profit, and the actual people in it were often not the recipients of that windfall. It may take the form of land, money, influence, or titles, but the motive for marriage was almost always one of these. Being overcome by beauty in rare cases could overcome such considerations, but these are rare. Therefore, when we talk of Jane and William's marriage as being a failure, we must forget our notions of what makes a failed marriage. Infidelity, lack of interest, what have you. These were to be expected in a medieval marriage. The causes of marriage failure were more often infertility or a change in the diplomatic situation. 
it is impossible for us to know for sure the actual reason why Jane and William's marriage ended in annulment, but it could well have been that the match was not any more mutually beneficial. The matter of the annulment was taken to a court in Cheapside, but they rejected Jane's argument that it could be annulled on the basis of non-consummation, which, it appears, was the given reason. The courts were only willing to grant one if it could be proven that they weren't too closely linked in blood, in other words, consanguinity. Now, clearly that wasn't the case, so Jane had to go all the way to the highest court of appeal there was, Rome. Amazingly, the Pope himself arranged for a special court to arrange a divorce for Jane. It was uncontested by William, and so on the 1st of March 1476, Jane found herself a free woman. How on earth did this daughter of a traitor manage to persuade God's representative on earth to get her an annulment? She surely had to have friends in high places, and that place appeared to be the English throne. Okay, so we need to back up a little bit here and talk more about Edward IV. When we last saw him, it was 1461 and he had just won the Battle of Taunton and secured the English throne from the hapless Henry VI. This was quite the jump for a man who only two years before had only been the eldest son of the Duke of York. Not only was he king, he was also Europe's most eligible bachelor. And there were a great many powerful fathers keen to throw their daughters at him. Now, for the full story of this, I recommend that you listen to episode 172, A Royal Marriage, of David Show. But to quickly sum it up, Edward was all set to marry the French king's sister-in-law, Bona of Savoy. He had sent the kingmaker Warwick off to arrange it, and everything seemed ready, until he turned around and said, No, I don't want to make this diplomatically advantageous match with this suitable woman whom I've never met. I'm going to marry this pretty blonde widow, who doesn't even have a claim to fame because she's a nobody. Elizabeth Woodville is the most left-field queen in all English history, and has led to more meet-cute stories in literature than can be counted. She was, by all accounts, very beautiful. According to one chronicle, quote, She was a woman of more formal countenance than of excellent beauty, but yet of such beauty and favour that with her sober demeanour, lovely expression, and with a feminine smile, neither too wanton nor too humble. Besides, her tongue was so eloquent and her wit so pregnant that she was able to allure and make subject to her the heart of so great a king. Edward was an impulsive guy, and a man who appeared to be driven by lust. His principal pursuit at court seems to have been chasing and seducing women. Now David has already read this quote by Dominic Mancini in one of his earlier episodes, but it is too good not to mention again. Mancini was an Italian visitor to England, and he describes its king's libido thusly. Quote, he was licentious in the extreme. Moreover, it was said that he had been most insolent to numerous women after he had seduced them, for, as soon as he grew weary of the dalliance, he gave up the ladies, much against their will, to the other courtiers. He pursued with no discrimination the married and the unmarried, the noble and lowly. However, he took none by force. What I'm trying to say basically is that Edward did a lot of his thinking with the bits beneath his trousers, and so when he first met Elizabeth Woodville, she knew that she would have to play things a little differently. He attempted to seduce her in the normal way, but she initially refused him, for she would not be a mistress that he could have some fun with for a few weeks before being discarded like a can of Coca-Cola. No, if he wanted to have his way with her, then he would have to first marry her. Anne Boleyn would copy this move 60 years later, and it had the same effect on their suitor. Edward was driven mad by desire, and so 
married Elizabeth without telling anyone in 1463. When it all finally came out, there was an uproar, and everyone tried to change the king's mind, even though the deed was already done. Now, I have portrayed so far Edward's marriage as being one of lust, and to a great extent I think that was the main reason behind it, but there may have been more to it than that. Edward and Elizabeth did share a successful marriage, and they definitely had an intimate and loving relationship. Edward, though, was a man of voracious sexual appetite, and it did not take long before he strayed from the marriage bed. Now, he considered himself to be a classy guy. He didn't parade his mistresses in front of his wife. No, that would be unchivalric. He just did it in some place else. Now, of course, this was no secret, and everyone in Europe knew that England had a randy proto-lad on the throne, but it seems that no one much cared. It was the culture of the time. Kings had mistresses, and it wasn't as if Edward was neglecting his wife in the bedchamber either. In their 18 years of marriage before his untimely death, they had no fewer than 10 children. That is more or less constant. Pregnancy, birth, few weeks off, then pregnancy again. Back in the Middle Ages, it was not considered to be good for the pregnancy to have sex, and so Edward played away while his wife did all the hard work of bearing their children. Elizabeth's strategy to dealing with this seems to have been rising above it. As I said, this kind of behaviour from her husband was not that out of the ordinary, though Edward's appetites do seem to have been a little more voracious than most. She and her family had hit the proverbial jackpot with this marriage, and so they were far from complaining about Edward's affairs as long as it did not affect their power. And this is where Jane Short comes back into our story. The million pound question is this, when did Edward meet Jane Short? While historians had deemed it unlikely to have been before the re-adeption, that six-month period where Edward was overthrown and Henry VI was briefly back on the throne, thanks to the actions of the kingmaker, Earl of Warwick. Given that her divorce would not take place until considerably later, and her material circumstances, it seems much more likely to have happened after Edward returned from his brief exile in Flanders at the head of a huge army of more rebel scum, and re-established himself on the throne, this time for good. This made Edward a free man. His early reign had been played by Lancastrian intrigue, but now his opponents were bloodied and beaten. He was free as a bird. Well, he was still married, but he would not let that change his ways. A likely time for their first meeting is in April 1471, just before Edward went off to fight Warwick at the Battle of Barnet. He was in London, and according to the chronicle of the Flemish diplomat Commons, he met, quote, several noblemen and wives of rich citizens whom he had been closely and secretly acquainted. You can almost see Commons giving you a knowing wink there. And he had, quote, won over their husbands and relatives to his cause. As a leading citizen of London and Yorkist supporter, it is almost certain that Jane's father, John Lambert, would have been there, and maybe even Jane's husband, William. She may well have been one of those, quote, wives of rich citizens that Commons was talking about. Whenever it was that they met... It seems that after his restoration, Edward and Jane very quickly started their relationship, and it was soon apparent that this was not one of Edward's usual love-them-then-leave-them type moves. Thomas More, our principal source, has this to say about how she met the king. Now remember that he is writing a history of King Richard III in Tudor times, and so does not have good things to say about Yorkist kings. That said, if you remember from my earlier quote, He was talking about how Jane never really loved her husband because she wasn't truly attracted to him. Well, Moore continues from there, 
which was happily the thing that the more easily made her include unto the king's appetite when he required her, howbeit the respect of his royalty, the hope of gay apparel, ease, pleasure, and other wanton wealth was soon able to pierce a soft and tender heart. But when the king had abused her, he, being rather puritanical, is referring to them having premarital sex and not any physical abuse, he continues, quote, Anon her husband, as he was an honest man, not presuming to touch a king's concubine, left her up to him altogether. He then goes on to describe her. It's pretty rare to get a decent description of a woman in the Middle Ages, as, if you believe the Chronicles, all women are unbelievable beautiful, sweet, pious, and all-round lovely, unless they were evil, in which case they were beautiful, but not at all sweet and not at all pious. Now, this account was written late in Moore's life, in the 1510s, and so Jane was actually still alive, albeit in her 70s, so there is reason to give credence to this description, as Moore has no real agenda here in this regard. Quote, Proper she was, and fair, nothing in her body that you would have changed, but you would have wished somewhat higher. Thus say they that knew her in her youth, deem her never to have been well visaged, whose judgment seemeth me somewhat like as though men should guess the beauty of one long before departed by her scalp, taken out of the charnel house, for now she is old, and yet, being ever such who so well advise her visage, might guess and devise which parts how filled would make it a fair face. Man, Thomas More really was a charmer. He goes on, Yet she delighted not men so much in her beauty as in her pleasant behaviour. For proper wit had she, and could both read well and write, merry in company, ready and quick of answer, neither mute nor full of bubble, sometime taunting without displeasure and not without disport. Disport meaning merriment. So basically, Moore is saying here that she may not have been much of a looker, but she was thoroughly charming, unlike himself, of course. He goes on to talk about where Jane lay in Edward's harem of mistresses. Quote, The king would say that he had three concubines, which in three diverse properties diversely excelled, one the merriest, another the wiliest, the third the holiest harlot in his realm, as one whom no man could get out of the church lightly to any place, but it were to his bed. The other two were somewhat greater in personages, and nevertheless of their humility content to be nameless, and to forbear the praise of these properties. But the merriest was this Shaw's wife, in whom the king therefore took special pleasure. For many he had, but her he loved. Jane was not Edward's only mistress, but she was his favourite mistress, and her influence was beginning to become apparent. Quote, She never abused any man's heart, but to many a man's comfort and relief, where the king took displeasure, she would mitigate and appease his mind. Where men were out of favour, she would bring him in his grace. For many that highly offended, she obtained pardon. Of great forfeitures, she get men remission. And finally, in many weighty suits, she stood many men in good stead, either for none or very small rewards, and those rather gay than rich, either for that she was content with the deed self well done, or for that she delighted to be sued unto, and to show what she was able to do with the king. Despite his backhanded compliments, Moore does like Jane, though mainly it's because of her treatment at the hands of Edward and Richard III allowed him to paint her as the honest, if somewhat licentious woman who was horribly treated by those nasty, nasty sons of York. If you are a listener to my show, then you may remember the supplemental that I did on Alice Perez, the mistress of Edward III, that he took after the death of his beloved wife, Philippa of Hainaut. 
Alice is always portrayed as a predator in the sources, the wily, immoral hussy that took advantage of an ageing king who was losing his marbles by using her skills in the bedchamber to promote her own agenda and that of her allies. Jane Shaw is not treated the same way by Thomas More. She had influence, certainly, but this influence is shown to be a benevolent one. Queens were expected to intercede on behalf of unfortunate subjects on behalf of the king, to throw themselves at their husbands' feet and beg them for mercy to be shown to these wretched creatures in front of them. Moore is describing Jane as behaving in a similar way, not using her influence for evil, but for good, and she did it not for money or power, but the feeling of a deed well done. Now frankly, this seems a little too rosy for me. Being the king's favourite mistress would have come with a lot of perks. Moore, of course, mentioned the, quote, gay apparel, ease, pleasure, and other wanton wealth, which, of course, would have been rewarding of itself, but it seems unlikely to me that she was so squeaky clean as to not use her privileged position to her advantage. No one got very far in the courts of the Yorkist monarchs, nor indeed probably in any of the other medieval and early modern ones, without getting their hands dirty in some influence peddling, and I doubt Jane was much different. Sadly, however, we don't have much evidence to suggest otherwise. We only really have Thomas More to guide us. Now, we are left mostly in the dark about the recipients of Jane's favour, but we know of one very big example, Eton College. Now the school of prime ministers, generals and foreign dictators, back then it was a very recent foundation, having been patronised by King Henry VI in 1440. Now, of course, being a Lancastrian foundation, Edward was not inclined to give its support, but sources indicate that Jane intervened and persuaded Edward to keep it from being merged with a nearby institution. Her confessor was the provost of Eton, and persuaded her to intercede with the king, which she did. Now, some have suggested that it was in fact the queen who did this, but to me the evidence does point to Jane, giving us a nice example of the kind of power that she had over the king when she wished. She was really, in essence, a second wife for Edward. While Elizabeth spent so much of her time having child after child, Jane was always at his side, a constant source of counsel. And, you know, the other thing. Elizabeth was not a powerless queen, but she had to share the role of intercessor with Jane, something that one imagines she wasn't entirely thrilled about, but was forced to accept. In my show, I have talked about many full-on queens who exerted far less influence in much longer reigns than Jane managed in just a few years as a royal mistress. Whatever Jane's morals were, there is no doubt that she would have been having the time of her life at Edward's court, but things were about to come crashing down around her. On the 9th of April 1483, Edward IV suddenly and unexpectedly died after a very short illness at the age of just 40. Now again, I'm not going to get into the controversy stoked up by Shakespeare about how he died, and who may or may not have had something to do with it, but it is fair to say that it was nothing short of a disaster for Jane Shaw. For one, the sudden nature of the death meant that Edward had not had time to make provision for his mistress. Now that her benefactor had gone, she was alone in a court that was full of vipers. The throne had passed the king's young son, Edward V, but he was but a child and helpless to act, as his uncles on both sides of the family fought for control of the regency. Jane needed someone to protect her, and she quickly found one in Lord Hastings, the dead king's former chamberlain. Moore suggests that he had always coveted Jane, but had refrained from making a move out of respect for the king, though I imagine fear was a far greater motive. This meant that Jane was, for the moment, safe, as Richard, Duke of Gloucester, ruthlessly set about gaining power, first by imprisoning the young Edward in the tower for his own protection, and then arranging for the execution-slash-murder of the leading Woodvilles and his brother Clarence. 
They had taken out so many of his opponents, Richard was still finding enemies everywhere, and one man he was eager to find was the Marquis of Dorset, a Woodvillian who Jane was close with and rumoured to have been having an affair with while with the king. Dorset had reached the sanctuary of Westminster Abbey along with the Queen and her daughters, but had later escaped, slipping past Richard's guards, and was now a visible symbol of defiance against the new regime. Richard was convinced that Jane was hiding him. He issued a warrant for his arrest, offering a huge amount of money for him, and accusing him of, quote, "...not having the fear of God, nor the salvation of his own soul. Before his eyes, he has damnably debauched and defiled many maids, widows and wives, and lived in actual adultery with the wife of Shaw." While Jane was positively portrayed by Thomas More, she would have had a bit of a reputation at court and on the streets, given that she was a mistress of a married man, and so it was all too easy for Richard to paint her as this sexually rapacious woman, who cared not if she slept with the traitor and ruined the honour of not only her ex-husband, but Dorset's wife as well. Heads were rolling at a fast pace in England, and no one associated with the regime of Edward IV was safe. Also, people were starting to mutter, Where is the new king? We haven't seen him or his little brother in ages. Wait. No. You don't think. Now, if you think I'm getting into the death of the princes in the tower, then you're completely crazy. But however they died, the fact is, they were dead. And Richard knew that he would be blamed for the deaths once the news broke, whether or not he was behind it. He needed more scapegoats. He accused both Jane and Elizabeth Woodville of being witches, but for now, no move was made to formally charge them with the crime. It was just used to smear the two women. Richard, though, did not think it prudent to go on full attack just yet. First, he needed to remove yet more of their male supporters, and that meant Hastings. By becoming Jane's new lover and protector, he had moved himself into Richard's crosshairs, and for him now, there would be no mercy. Now, of course, Shakespeare's Richard III has a somewhat loose, re- has a somewhat loose relationship with historical fact, it being possibly even more anti-Yorkist than even Thomas More's account, but I can't resist putting in Richard's accusations against Hastings, Elizabeth and Jane from the play. This is from Act 3, Scene 4, and Richard is returning to a meeting with some nobles, including Hastings. Now, I really wanted to put a scene either from Ian McKellen's film version of the play or the recent Hollow Crown version starring Benedict Cumberbatch, but sadly, they both abridged the speech too much. So you'll have to make do with me. Richard storms into the room and says, I pray you all, tell me what they deserve, that do conspire my deaths with devilish plots, of damned witchcraft, and that have prevailed upon my body with their hellish charms. Hastings then replies, The tender love I bear your grace, my lord, makes me most forward in this noble presence, to doom the offenders whatsoever they be. I say, my lord, they have deserved death. Richard then yells, Then be your eyes the witness of this ill. See how I am bewitched. Behold, mine arm is like a blasted sapling, withered up. And this is Edward's wife, that monstrous witch, consorted with that harlot strumpet shore, that by their witchcrafts thus have marked me. In Thomas More's account, Richard has Hastings accused of being an, quote, evil counsellor to the king's father, enticing him to many things highly redounding to the minishing of his honour and to the universal hurt of this realm by his evil company, sinister procuring an ungracious example, as well in many other things as in the vicious living and inordinate perversion of his body, both with many others and especially with Shaw's wife, 
which is one also of his most secret counsel of his heinous treason. In both of these accounts, Jane is accused, along with the Queen and Hastings, of using sorcery to sabotage Richard's reign. Not that he was paranoid or anything, but then again, everyone was out to get him. Hastings will be taken straight from there and executed. Jane's last line of defence was gone. The accusations came thick and fast. In that account above, she is accused of using her body to entice the former king and lead him astray. All the while, also sleeping with a traitor. She was also accused of colluding with the Queen in a plot to remove Richard and restore the Woodvilles. Now, the Queen and the Mistress would seem to be an odd pairing, but their mutual enemy was dangerous enough, and his plans dastardly enough, to make me think that this did actually happen. But Richard got wind of it and had Jane thrown in jail and her possessions seized. I say thrown... But as a free woman of the City of London, she actually had the power to choose which prison she would be thrown into. The city has always had a lot of power over the rulers of England. She chose Ludgate, which suggests that she would have been kept in relative comfort. But now she was powerless as Richard launched the next stage of his plan to become king. Smear his dead brother. His accusation was that his brother was illegitimate because of an alleged affair that their mother had before Edward's birth. But the important thing here is that it was really bad for Jane. At the moment, her position as a royal mistress was giving her a certain position and status. She wasn't the Dowager Queen, but her relationship with the former king gave her some protection against further humiliation. However, if Richard succeeded in essentially annulling his brother's kingship, as it was never legal, then she was nothing more than a mistress and an illegally married bastard. Now, Richard could not keep her in jail forever, but he had further torture for her. Remember the clip that I played with you from Game of Thrones at the top of the show? Well, that was Jane's punishment. Richard wanted to destroy any lingering affection that the people of London had for her, and so ordered the Bishop of London to condemn her to public penance. It is described vividly by Thomas More, who some believe may have actually witnessed it himself as a young boy. Richard, quote, "...caused the Bishop of London to put her to open penance, going before the cross in procession upon a Sunday, with a taper in her hand." She went in countenance and paced a mule so womanly, and albeit she were all out of array save her kirtle only, yet went so fair and lovely, namely, while the wandering of the people cast a comely red in her cheeks, of which she before had most miss, that her great shame won her much praise among those that were amorous of her body than curious of her soul. So to translate a bit, she went with a candle and was dressed only in a kirtle, which was the garment you wore between your underclothes and your coat. Now, this may not seem like much of a punishment, but at the time going out like this was a bit like you walking down the high street in just your underwear. Moreover, she was barefoot, the sign of the sinner. Moore describes that she did this with her head held high, but she was still heckled by people calling her a harlot who wanted to have their way with her. So far, so good for Richard's attempt to smear her further, but Moore goes on to say that it backfired on him a little. Many good folk also that hated her living and glad were to see sin corrected, yet pitied they more her penance than rejoiced therein, when they considered that the protector procured it more a corrupt intent than any virtuous affection. According to Moore, the crowns of London were glad to see a sinner punished, but they were very suspicious of Richard's motives here. Now, of course, once again, we must remember that Moore wrote this in Tudor times when Richard's name was worse than mud, but remember that he may well have been there in the crowd and there may be truth in what he says. After that, she was thrown back into Ludgate Prison, but Jane still had a few tricks up her sleeve. 
She knew the power that her body and abundant charms had over the men of the court, and so she entranced a new man, the king's lawyer, Thomas Lynham. Now, we're not entirely sure who this guy was exactly, but he had been a member of Richard's retinue for a long time, aiding him with the legalities of running all of his estates. Once Richard was king, he used Lynham to undermine the power of the nobles through going after their estates on various legal technicalities. He was so good at this that he rose to the position of Solicitor General and was as great a supporter of Richard as could be found, but he, like so many, fell for Jane's charms. After meeting with her, Lynham went to the king with a proposal. He wanted to marry Jane Shaw. We know about this thanks to a letter Richard sent to one of his bishops. Quote, It is shown unto us that our servant and solicitor Thomas Lynham marvellously blinded and abused the late wife of William Shaw, now being in Ludgate prison by our commandment, hath made contract of matrimony with her, as it is said, and intendeth of our great marvel to proceed to effect the same. Pray you therefore to send for him, and that you may goodly exhort and stir him to the contrary. And if you find him utterly set for to marry her, and none other will be advertised, if it may stand with the law of the church, we be content, the time of the marriage being deferred to our coming next to London, that on sufficient surety being found of her good bearing, you do send for her keeper and discharge him of our said commandment. Richard here is clearly not best pleased with Thomas, but he does not want to lose such a valuable servant, and so agrees to let him marry Jane if he must. This shows to me that he believes that his work was done with Jane. She was separated from her influential patrons and utterly humiliated in front of the whole city of London and painted as a sinner. Short of killing her, there wasn't much else that he could do to make her powerless. Giving her as a reward to Lynham would keep him happy and hopefully keep her in line. The two were married quickly, no doubt worried that Richard would change his mind, and so Jane was free, and very quickly she had her first child, a daughter who in fact would be her only child. It is here that Jane leaves the main political stage of England. The lack of mention of their daughter other than in a will suggests that she may well have died young. Lynham would stay in royal service even after the death of King Richard, but in a much reduced role. Of Jane, we know almost nothing of her later life. All we have is, for the final time, a passage in Thomas More's account. He has just finished writing about how attractive she was in her prime, something I quoted earlier, but what I left out was this bit. Quote, now she is old, lean, withered, and dried up, nothing left but riveled skin and hard bone. This was her in her 70s, and Moore portrays her as a penniless beggar roaming the streets of London. No mention is given of Lynham, who is presumably dead. Now, once again, Thomas's characterization of Jane's age and decay seems overblown, but he was writing about something that was going on around him, and it is hard to see how he could have gotten away with making too much stuff up about Jane's situation, as the people around him would have known if he was lying. It is clear then to me that Jane's life did not have a happy ending. Jane would die in 1527, outliving her two husbands, her child, and her enemies. We don't know where she died, what killed her, or where she was buried. Like much of her life, her death is lost in the fog of history. The reason why I've quoted so liberally from Thomas More's history of Richard III in this show is simply because he is, for most of Jane's life, our only narrative source. She turns up in snippets here and there, but if it were not for more, she would be just a historical footnote. Yet now, she is one of the best-known mistresses in English history. Why? Well, because Moore's history became the principal primary source for Elizabethan playwrights. The most famous was William Shakespeare, who used it as his Bible while composing Richard III. 
Jane is mentioned 11 times in the play, though never by her first name, she is always called Mistress Shaw or Shaw's wife. She played a bigger role, though, in a two-part play by Thomas Hayward called The First and Second Parts of King Richard IV, which came out in 1599. Thomas portrays the situation as a classic love triangle with the Queen and Jane vying for the affection of the King. There are cat fights, threats of murder, it's all rather fun. It is this play that kept the story of Jane in the public memory as it was popularly played for the next hundred years. Over the centuries, her legend was kept alive in ballads, stories and poems too numerous to count. She's been portrayed as the innocent damsel, attacked by the evil Richard III but saved by brave men, as the temptress who kept her king under her spell, and as a tragic figure whose life was just one man taking advantage of her after another. She's mentioned in works written by such luminaries as Jane Austen and even Mark Twain, who includes her in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn so casually that it is clear that he thinks his American audience will know exactly who she was. The National Portrait Gallery in London is full of portraits of her, and though she is lesser known now than she once was, she has been the main character of quite a few books in the last few years, including Mistress to the Crown and The King's Mistress by Sold Martin and Anne Easter Smith, respectively. She is, of course, also in Philippa Gregory's novel The White Queen as a rival to the main character, Elizabeth Woodville. So why has the story of Jane Shaw, a woman so barely known that until 40 years ago we didn't even know her real name, resonated so much with writers for 400 years? Jane is one of the main reasons I started my podcast in the first place, an example of a woman in the Middle Ages who, despite the shackles of the patriarchy, manages to exert influence and power. Someone at the mercy of male domination, yet makes her presence felt. The reason why we don't know her name is that everyone from Richard III to Thomas More never called her by her first name. She was only named in reference to her ex-husband. So she was Mistress Shaw, or more commonly, Shaw's wife. She was seen as the property of a man, yet she was patently not that at all. She had the opportunity to lead a nice comfortable life with William Shaw. She was born into pretty good money, married pretty good money, and even had the opportunity to make more money herself, thanks to the education given to her by her parents, but she wanted more than that. Hers is not a rags-to-riches story, but she was a self-made woman in the sense that everything she achieved, she earned. Her parents, disapproving of the ending to the marriage that they had arranged for her, did not support her after her annulment. She was on her own, but she used, pun alert, her greatest assets her looks and charm, to win the affection of a womanising king who held little respect for women other than his wife. She was able to hold a privileged position at court unmatched by any other mistress in medieval history save Alice Perez. She was no saint. She had a love of her so-called gay apparel. She amassed wealth and possessions, but unlike almost every other famous royal mistress from history, she is not seen as a power-hungry harlot. Now, this has quite a lot to do with the fact that she is cast against the evil Richard III in most plays and stories, but it is clear that she was not like the others. She was sensible in her actions and made very few enemies. She managed to charm almost every man she met, and were it not for the turbulent times in which she lived, things may well have turned out very much better for her. While at the peak of her powers, she lived and acted like a queen, and a more than usually powerful one at that, having considerable influence over the king. If we are to believe Thomas More, then she only used her influence for good, helping up the downtrodden rather than enriching herself with corruption. And while, as I said, I think this is rather too rosy, it does seem to me that she was careful not to appear a greedy leech on the royal coffers, a mistake made by royal mistresses in the past and future. Once she fell from power, through no fault of her own, 
She must have feared for her life, but she acted rationally and cleverly. She probably did not want to seduce Hastings and Lynham, but after the death of the king, she had no other choice. She by all accounts kept her cool and accepted her humiliating forced penitence. She was a survivor. She lived longer than anyone in the story, and that alone makes her worthy of our attention. I will leave you with a ballad written by the Irish poet Thomas MacDonagh, written in 1954, because I think it sums her up so well, if a little over-romantically. As she went down through Lombard Street to make her open penitence, her cheeks that never blushed before were warm in her defence. A linen skirt, her only dress, all London stopped and wondering, a taper in the little hand that once had held a king. Bare to the waist, as though she rose from the reluctant amorous sea, raindrops were pearls that garlanded her hair's pale filigree. Her body, white as a waxen taper, crowned at the head with golden light, had ripened in a shop of gold to be a queen by night. And she was young and womanly, none saw her without love or pity, now stripped to live for gay apparel, now shamefaced, who was witty. Proper she was, and fair of body, a grey eye merry, a slender figure, an ankle that a man might span between a thumb and finger. And she had been the king's gay love, who now must beg forsakenly from those that would be beggars still but for her charity. But love that's light, once lovers die, is as a blade that courts the rust, the evil deed men write in marble, the comely one in dust. By heck. Poetry, egad. Thank you, James. Brilliant. And thanks, everyone. Remember to share the website and Facebook post for the great Richard III debate, if you wouldn't mind. Put your thinking caps on and see you all next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.